So I heard someone comment this week on the radio, they don't really know the culture of a team until there's adversity. So when the team is winning, it's easy to assume that the culture is great. Everyone's happy, everyone's upbeat, everyone's excited just to be part of the team. But if a team starts losing, well, that's when you can really begin to see what kind of culture do they have. How do the players respond when things aren't going well? Are they still eager to work hard? Are they still eager to encourage, eager to practice, eager to do their job? I think that same principle applies in many settings, in, in work, in marriage, in family. I think it also applies in the local church. When things are going well, for instance, when membership is increasing, families are growing, new believers are being baptized, these are blessings that we love to participate in. But what about when things are not going as well? What about when things get hard? Specifically, what will happen when those blessings get disrupted by the reality of sin? Will we continue to participate joyfully in the ministry God has called us to? Will we embrace the challenges of ministry as much as we embrace the blessings of ministry? You can open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Our passage this morning is Galatians 5, verse 25 through Galatians 6, verse 5. We're in the final section of Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. And just to review, the first two chapters of this letter, Paul was defending the authority of of the gospel. And then in chapters 3 and 4, Paul was articulating the doctrine of the gospel. And now, in these final chapters, Paul is applying the gospel to our lives and community together. And what we saw last week as Paul's doing this is that true believers apply the gospel by walking in the Spirit. It's only by relying on the Spirit that we can deny our flesh and truly serve one another in love. We must walk by the Spirit. And this is where we pick up in our passage this morning. Galatians 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. So this morning's message, church, is very specific. It's a very specific call to walk by the Spirit when a brother or sister is caught in sin. And it's a message that we need to hear because it's a reality that has impacted us and will impact us. And if we're going to walk well together when a brother sins, then this morning we need to digest this passage together and see three things this morning. First, we need to see what we're going to call the community of the Spirit. The community of the Spirit. You know, it's easy to forget when we're reading our English translations that most of the instructions in the New Testament letters are not singular, but plural. Not you, but y'all. When Paul wrote the words, walk by the Spirit, what he literally wrote was, y'all walk by the Spirit. All y'all walk by the Spirit. You see, walking by the Spirit is not something we do as individuals. It's something we do in community with others. 
And if this was implicit in our passage last week, it becomes abundantly clear in our passage today as we see us and we and one another in your neighbor language all throughout. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let's think about that verse for a few minutes. Verse 25, the premise says, if we live by the Spirit. Now we need to acknowledge that first and foremost, that is describing something that is either true or false of each one of us as individuals. As individuals, you and I either live by the Spirit or we do not live by the Spirit. If someone lives by the Spirit, what Paul means is that they have been given spiritual life through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is describing what the New Testament calls regeneration or being born again. Each one of us needs to hear the gospel Each one of us needs to repent of our sins, and each one of us needs to trust in Jesus. And if that happens, if you have heard the gospel and repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, then you are someone who lives by the Spirit. You are someone who has been born again. You are someone who has been regenerated. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then the Holy Spirit has transformed your heart and given you new life. You live by the Spirit. Now with that said, while regeneration happens in each one of us individually, What we also need to understand is that when that happens, the Spirit also unites us to a community. So Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 12. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. In one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You see, when you place your faith in Jesus, the Spirit unites you to Jesus, but also the Spirit unites you to the church, the body of Christ. This is why in Galatians, Paul says, we and us instead of you, without even, uh, without even acknowledging in the individual. He, he's thinking in corporate terms, right? Because whoever lives by the Spirit has been united to the community of the Spirit. The church is the community of the Spirit. This, in turn, shapes our understanding of what Paul means when he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We're so prone to just read that as individuals. This instruction to keep in step, it's a military image for getting in line or standing in a row, getting in formation. It pictures a command leader whose troops are perfectly lined up with his position and are carefully following his lead. Church, we are not lone rangers. We are the troops called together to get in line with the Holy Spirit as a singular unit. We walk by the Spirit alongside one another. We are all getting in line with the Spirit together. The one application we need to make from the verses like this is just the necessity of church membership. The necessity of church membership. How do we live out the reality that the Spirit has united us to the body of Christ? How do we obey God's instructions to walk alongside the body of Christ? Well, we do it by committing ourselves to local churches. You see, local churches are communities of people who live by the Spirit and are seeking to keep in step with the Spirit. And through church membership, we're giving visible expression to our spiritual unity. And we have a concrete context for walking alongside one another. And so if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you live by the Spirit, but you're not joined to a local church, know this morning that this is God's will for us as believers. Whether it's here with Redeemer and another gospel-preaching church, prayerfully commit yourself to a local community of other Spirit-indwelt believers through church membership. We see the necessity of church membership in the we of this verse. Now, for our members this morning, we need to press in a little further. 
It's one thing to be a church member, but it's another thing to live as a church member. Just a few minutes ago, we renewed our membership covenant together. We do that because this is what membership entails. Are you living those commitments out? Are you consistently gathering for worship? Are you actively serving the body? Are you praying with and for one another? Are you pursuing discipleship relationships with each other? Are you walking alongside the body? Because if you aren't, listen, that means you aren't walking by the Spirit. If you're not walking with the church, you're not walking by the Spirit. It's impossible to keep in step with the Spirit if you are not walking alongside the community of the Spirit. If we are in line with the Spirit, we will be in line with one another too. And so churches, we've already renewed our commitments this morning. Let's be sure that those are not just empty words that we say. Let's embrace the fullness of what it means to live in this community of the Spirit together. And this brings us to the second thing we need to see this morning. We've seen the community of the Spirit. Now we're going to see the ministry of the spiritual. The ministry of the spiritual. One truth that we saw last week is that true believers are not characterized by the works of the sinful nature. Those who are led by the Spirit have crucified the flesh and they bear the fruit of the Spirit. On the other hand, those who continue living in the works of the flesh, Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is a necessary truth for us to believe and proclaim today because there are so many who think that they've been saved, but they've never actually repented of their sins and they don't bear the fruit of the Spirit. Those who truly live by the Spirit will be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. However, we also saw last week that there is a war raging in our hearts. We saw that the desires of our sinful nature are set against the desires of the Holy Spirit. We heard that these warring desires keep us from doing the things that we want to do. And because of this war, what we see in our passage in verse 1 today is that there are times when a true believer will become entangled in their sin. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. There are times where brothers are caught in transgression. Now, when I first read that phrase, we might picture something like being caught red-handed, like your mom walks into the kitchen when your hand is in the cookie jar. But that's not the image Paul's trying to communicate here, that you, you were, we, we caught you, we saw what you did. No, no, this word for caught means you're overcome or you're overtaken. Paul is describing sin as an enemy that has taken someone by surprise and trapped them as its prisoner. The person Paul is describing has not simply committed sin. This person has been surprised and subdued by sin such that now they cannot escape. What should we do when this happens? Well, there's two things that we should not do, two wrong actions that we could take before we look at what Paul says to do. One wrong response is to immediately condemn this person for their sin, to disown them, to excommunicate them, to make them believe that they can never be forgiven. If we heap condemnation on a brother or sister who's been caught in sin, then we show we really haven't understood the way sin works in our hearts. The other wrong response would be to accept this person's sin, just to look the other way, just to say it's okay. Some might want to do this in the name of grace, but the truth is that sin destroys. Sin brings death. Sin, sin ruins everything. If we see a brother or sister caught in sin and don't do anything about it, well, we show we haven't really understood the meaning of grace. And so what should our response be? When we see brother or sister overcome, caught, subdued, entangled in sin, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, 
you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This is our responsibility to a fellow church member who's been overtaken in sin. We must restore them. We must restore them. We must help them escape the flesh. We must go to them and help them untangle the net that they're trapped in. We must pursue them and lead them back to life in the Spirit. We are called to the ministry of restoration. Now you might be thinking, by we you mean pastors, right? By we you mean counselors, right? After all, Paul says, you who are spiritual. He must have in mind really mature Christians who have it all figured out. The spiritual ones are the ones who restore. Well, actually, Paul's thinking much more broadly than that. When he says, you who are spiritual, he means you who are walking by the Spirit. You who are keeping in step with the Spirit. Listen to how Tom Schreiner puts it in his commentary on this phrase. He says, the spiritual do not constitute an elite group of Christians, nor does Paul restrict himself to just a portion of the congregation. All of the Galatians received the Spirit when they heard the message of the Gospel. They all enjoy Abraham's blessing, for they have all received the promise of the Spirit. God has given them His Spirit because they are His sons, and they live by the Spirit. Therefore, as those who are walking by the Spirit, are led by the Spirit, and are keeping in step with the Spirit, they are to reestablish those who have fallen. In other words, church, we all are called to the responsibility of restoration. We are the spiritual. The church is the spiritual, and we are called to this ministry together. This is the main idea that we need to hear in our passage this morning. Those who walk by the Spirit must help those who are caught in the flesh. Those who walk by the Spirit must help those who are caught in the flesh. If you are truly walking by the Spirit, then when your brother or sister is caught in sin, you will follow the Spirit into the ministry of caring for them and seeking to restore them. You will not sideline yourself. You will not let someone else do that. If you are walking by the Spirit, you will help restore your brother. Redeemer, today we have a fellowship meal, and I'm looking forward to watching our kids play together and eating some delicious tacos and enjoying good conversation with each other. Over the course of this month, we'll continue to enjoy good teaching and build and encouraging songs and worship and time in home groups together and fun activities like the, the Pine Car Derby and some Bible Church. And these, these rhythms of church life, they're wonderful, they're precious, they're a blessing. And I pray that the Lord just continues to bless us with this kind of fellowship. It, it's all wonderful. But church, true spiritual fellowship prioritizes holiness. We are not doing life together because it's fun. We're not doing life together because our kids get along or because we're all having babies at the same time. We're not doing life together because we have similar interests or even because we have similar theology. The goal of our life together is the glory of Christ and our joy in Him. The goal of our fellowship is our conformity to His image. The goal of our relationships is one another's holiness. And so if one of us, if any of us, becomes entangled in sin, then all of us must be committed to the work of spiritual restoration. If we're truly walking by the Spirit, then we will care for one another when someone gets caught in the flesh. So let's review. We've seen so far that walking by the Spirit is something that we do in the community of the Spirit, not as individuals. We do it in the body of Christ. And we've seen that those who are truly walking by the Spirit, the spiritual, engage in the ministry of spiritual restoration But now we need to ask, what does this actually look like? 
How do we go about restoring someone who's been caught in sin? And this brings us to the final thing where we're going to see the bulk of our instructions today, the instructions for restoration. The instructions for restoration. Well, for the past few months, I've been trying my hand at coaching an eight and under basketball team. You know, if you can't play, coach. <laughs> if you can't coach, I don't know what I'll do. The majority of these kids have never played basketball before, eight and under. And I quickly realized that there are two things I need to teach them. The rules of basketball and the skills for basketball. So I've had to teach them the rules, where, where the positions are, what a jump ball is, what the lines of the court mean, and, and that we don't need four people to throw the ball in at once. Right? What, what things are allowed and not allowed. And then I've also had to teach them the skills of the game, how to pass and catch a ball, how to dribble, how to get a rebound, how to shoot. And in order to play a good game of basketball, we need both of those things. We need to understand the rules of the game. We need to practice the necessary skills. When it comes to the ministry and the work of spiritual restoration, there are, in a sense, both rules and skills. There's what to do, and then there's how to do it. We're familiar with Matthew 18, where Jesus taught the disciples what to do when a brother sins. You go to your brother alone, you tell him his sin, and you call him to repentance. If he doesn't listen, then you take one or two others with you, and you try again. And if they still don't listen, then you tell it to the church, and together you call him to repentance yet again. And if he still doesn't listen, then the church removes that brother from fellowship, regards him as an unbeliever. These are, to use that illustration, the rules that Jesus gave for the work of restoration. This is what we should do when a brother is caught in sin. What we have in Galatians 6, on the other hand, are God's instructions for how to do that work how to do the work of spiritual restoration. The responsibility of restoration is weighty. And it's all too easy for us to do more harm than good, both to ourselves and to our brother, if we don't approach it the right way. And yet we can't shrink back from it. We can't not make that call. We can't not go to coffee. We, we need to do this. So church, how do we go about the work of restoring someone who's been caught in sin? And in our passage, there's five instructions that Paul gives uh, back to back to back that help us see how do we do this. And so five instructions that we need to follow as we engage in the work of, uh, of restoration. And so first, we must cultivate humility. We must cultivate humility. And just to make sure we're doing well here, I, wanna, I just want to ask whoever would say they're humble, just go ahead and raise your hand high so we can see. Of course, it's difficult to find someone who will publicly claim humility. The minute they do, you can say, you're so conceited. Right? Humility can seem like an unattainable virtue because the minute we begin thinking we've arrived at humility, we realize that our pride has just reemerged. And yet, God calls us to clothe ourselves with humility toward each other. So how do we do that without falling into pride? I think one problem we have is that we don't define humility the right way. We tend to think that humility means thinking less of ourselves. But actually, humility, biblically, just means thinking of ourselves less. Paul says it this way in verse 26, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So this word conceited, we might just think someone that's just super arrogant and proud. But it doesn't simply mean proud. The old King James puts it this way, 
It means that we are desirous of vain glory. Desirous of vain glory. To be conceited means that you desire the empty praise of other people. You want others to make much of you. You long for recognition from others. You desire affirmation from others. And what this leads to is provoking others, challenging others who you view as lesser, or envying others who you view as greater. So you can think very lowly of yourself and still be conceited, full of envy for those that you think are better than you, because it's all about you. It's all turned in on yourself. The answer is not to just think less of yourself, it's to think of yourself less. It's to cultivate what Tim Keller coined self-forgetfulness. You stop thinking about your relationships through the lens of self. You stop asking yourself, what do people think of me? How do I stack up? Why don't others acknowledge me? Instead, you view your relationships through the lens of care. How can I love the person in front of me? How can I help them? How can I encourage them? We cultivate humility by cultivating self-forgetfulness. This is prerequisite to helping our brother when they're caught in sin. We must cultivate humility. We must deal gently. Second, we must deal gently. Paul says in verse 1 that those who are spiritual must restore their brother in a spirit of gentleness. In church, we live in a time when gentleness is being discarded. Not just in the culture, but also in the church. Many seem to think that gentleness just doesn't work anymore. Gentleness is weak. Gentleness, gentleness means that you're going woke. And that it's high time for us just to be bold and brash and clear and unashamed. But church, first of all, I just want to say gentleness does not exclude boldness or clarity. But second, the decision to put off gentleness is a decision to trust in your flesh. The decision to put off gentleness is a decision to say, we're going to do it my way now. But Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, and gentleness is the defining quality that Paul says should mark the work of spiritual restoration. We cannot discard gentleness. Now what does it mean to deal gently with someone? How do we restore someone in a spirit of gentleness? It means that we must be careful and compassionate with each other. Careful and compassionate. Imagine that you need to carry a highly valuable and highly breakable object up a flight of stairs. What do you do? Do you toss it around? Do you run up the stairs with it? No, you you. Make sure you have a good grip with both hands and you watch every step as you slowly carry it to its destination and make sure it arrives intact. That's the kind of care that we need when we come to each other seeking to restore. We don't just run in guns blazing with charges and admonitions and accusations. No, we prayerfully discern when and where and how to talk with our brother and sister in order to lovingly call him to repentance. We're careful. We're careful with our brother. We're careful with our sister. And not only careful, but gentleness also means that we must be compassionate. We don't come against each other. We come alongside each other. We don't come with accusations. We come asking questions. We don't come out of frustration. We come with understanding. To be compassionate, we must remember our brother's weakness. We must empathize with our brother's struggles. We must consider our brother's need. And most importantly, if we're compassionate, it means that we long for our brother's restoration. We want them to be restored. We can't enter into the duty of restoration without having a heart that desires restoration. 
Those we help must know and feel that we really are for them. We really do love them. And our heart is breaking for them to have joy in Jesus. That's the kind of gentleness that reflects the heart of Christ and that God has said he will bless as we seek to restore our brother. We must deal gently. Third, we must be vigilant. We must be vigilant. Look at what Paul says next in verse 1. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And here we see a principle that we must be careful never to forget that the spiritual are still vulnerable. The spiritual are still vulnerable. Those who are walking by the Spirit are vulnerable to the flesh. Those who are seeking to restore others from sin can be tempted towards sin themselves. When you come alongside someone caught in sin, you need to realize that you could end up caught in the net too. You aren't above their struggles. You share the same heart. And therefore, we must be vigilant about our own hearts and our own lives. Practically, one thing this means, church, is that we cannot let ministry to others crowd out the Spirit's ministry in our own lives. We cannot sacrifice our own relationship with Christ as we seek to restore someone else's relationship with Christ. We have to be vigilant to bring our own hearts before the Lord continually. We must be vigilant to meditate on His Word to us. We must be vigilant to confess our own sins and our own struggles. And we must be vigilant to invite others into our own lives. If we neglect our own hearts as we seek to help someone else, we will end up caught ourselves. We must be vigilant. Fourth, we must make sacrifices. We must make sacrifices. In verse 2, we come to one of the best descriptions we have in the New Testament of what it means to walk in the Spirit as a community, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is a wonderful image to describe all sorts of ministries that we engage in as a church. The pictures of someone carrying a heavy load over a long distance. They're weary, they're weak, they're struggling to lift the weight and to keep going. And here you are, and though it's their burden and not your burden, and though they have nothing to reward you with, and though you have your own life and your own work that you can attend to, God's call to you is to get up under their burden, get next to them, and get up under it and walk the long journey with them. Church, this is the vivid picture of the sacrificial labor involved in the work of spiritual restoration. Don't think that you will have one conversation with your brother and then they won't struggle anymore. Don't imagine that he will just repent and immediately the temptations he faces will disappear. No! You can't just call your brother to repentance and walk away. You need to help him as he pursues repentance. You need to bear the burden of his sin struggle with him. You need to make time to pray with him and to pray for him and to encourage him and to study the word with him. And the reason, Paul says, we need to do all this is to fulfill the law of Christ. This fulfills the law of Christ because this is the expression of sacrificial love for your brother's highest good. This is truly loving your neighbor as yourself. The work of spiritual restoration is a labor of love. And we need to be ready to make sacrifices for our brothers and sisters when they're caught in sin. Finally, fifth, we must think ahead. Think ahead. We're going to look at the last three verses of our passage and, and seek to work our way through some things that might immediately look a little perplexing. Verses 3 through 5, he says, For if anyone thinks he is something... When he is nothing, 
he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now in light of what we just heard, the call to bear each other's burdens, isn't it odd that Paul now says each will have to bear his own load? Is Paul contradicting himself here? No, Paul's calling the Galatians to think ahead. He's calling the Galatians to remember that the day is coming when each one of us will appear before Christ and give a singular account for our lives. We will bear our load before the Lord and no one else will bear it with us. Our ministry to one another today needs to be controlled by the reality that that day is coming. Each one of us will bear our own load. And, and you see, here's what can happen. When we enter into the work of spiritual restoration, and my, my prayer and hope is that you will do that. You will enter into that work, but it's a dangerous thing. We can begin to think that we are something. We can begin comparing our lives with the one that we're helping. We might even begin to think to ourselves, where would they be without me? And we can begin to boast in ourselves on account of our brother. I'm something. Paul gives a not-so-subtle reminder to us in verse 3. You are nothing. Welcome to Redeemer Church. You're nothing. <laughs> you know? What Paul means is that there's nothing inherently good in us. We bring nothing of value to the work of spiritual restoration. Though God is using us to help our brother, this isn't because he needs us in any way. We are nothing left to ourselves. What is the remedy for those who think there's something? Well, to remember the day that each of us will appear before Christ bearing our own load. On that day, we won't be graded on a curve. We won't be evaluated in comparison to one another. We will be evaluated on the basis of God's perfect righteousness. And the only ones who will pass that test are those who have been justified by faith in Jesus with a faith that expresses itself through love. And so Paul says, test yourselves. Not by comparing yourselves with each other. Don't test yourself by looking at your neighbor and saying, how am I doing and how are they doing? No, test yourself by examining the fruit of your own faith in Jesus. Then our boast will not be, Lord, look at how much better I lived than that person. Look at how much I helped that pitiful, struggling sinner. No, that won't be our boast. Instead, our boast before the Lord will be, Lord, look at the fruit your spirit bore and someone as weak and sinful as me. Lord, look at the work that you accomplished through someone as insufficient as me. Our boast is really just a boast in the Lord and what he does in us by his spirit. What this final instruction to think ahead is really getting at is that we must remember the reality that we are all sinners in need of grace. The work of spiritual restoration is not the work of those who need less grace helping those who need more grace. No, it's the work, listen, of those who have discovered the transforming power of grace, helping others discover the transforming power of grace. When we understand this, we realize the work of spiritual transformation is nothing but helping others come to Jesus. The work of spiritual transformation is nothing but the work of helping others come to Jesus. Because listen, Jesus Christ is the only one who actually has the power to restore someone who's been caught in sin. Only Jesus can do it. I cannot untangle the net. You cannot untangle the net. You cannot remove the burden. But Christ can. 
and Christ will, and Christ does. We are nothing, but he is everything. Though he's the son of God, he's the most humble person who's ever lived. In utter self-forgetfulness, he bore our burdens on the cross, and now, with a heart full of compassion, gentle and lowly, he calls us to himself so that he can gently restore us through his grace. Jesus is the one we need. And when we enter into the work of restoration, all we're doing is saying, come to Jesus with me. I need him, and you need him. And so are you caught in sin this morning? Are you caught in sin this morning? One, tell your brother. Tell your sister. Get help. You can't untangle the net. But don't look to your brother. Look to Jesus. Let them bring you to Jesus. Are you helping someone who's been caught in sin this morning? Well, you need Jesus too. You need him just as much. Together, together, let's turn our hearts to Jesus Christ and let's rejoice in his forgiving and transforming grace and his wonderful work of restoration.